Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Adam Levy, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. In today's episode, Moving Labs Abroad. In this series, we're answering the question of how to move labs. We've already looked into how to choose a lab, as well as the questions around moving when you're not just considering yourself, but your relationship too. And coming up later in this six-part series, we're looking at the challenges of moving labs with a disability, dealing with switching disciplines, and moving around while in the midst of a pandemic. In today's episode, though, we're taking a look at a giant leap that can be equal parts overwhelming and rewarding, moving to a lab abroad. What opportunities can changing country open up, and what challenges does it present. I spoke with three researchers about their experiences, positive and negative, to give you a sense of the impact these changes can bring on you as a scientist as well as on research as a whole. One easy stumbling block is language, not necessarily vocabulary and grammar, but those much harder to define cultural norms that go into our communication. Missing these cues is something that Ali Bamani has occasionally struggled with. You see, Ali grew up and initially worked in Iran, but he's now a PhD student in electrical engineering at the University of Javla in Sweden, where he works on digital twins and distributed systems. He moved to Sweden with his wife, an urban planner who is retraining so that she can apply these skills in the Swedish context. I caught up with Ali and asked how the two of them ended up in Northern Europe. Then I have graduated at the master level. I joined to the industry in Iran and I had, I think, more than seven years of experience of working in the industry in Iran. But after that, all of these seven years, uh, I like to enroll to the PhD and continue my education. And after that, I found uh, some university in Sweden 
Were you at all nervous about the possibility of moving from Iran to Sweden? At least in the academic level, uh, we have some differences between them. But one thing which I realized uh, was that mostly the Swedish people that they are working in the academy, they are, they are shy people and they're, they're, they are very polite because they never say uh, that this sport is very bad. They never say these things. <laughs> I think uh, when my supervisor said that, okay, this work is good, and then uh, some good words, and then finally say, but we need to do something. And then I realized that, oh my God, this work is not good. Because when, it's, uh, when the Swedish people say, but at the end of their sentences. But uh, I realized it uh, after one year, and then I found that, okay, I need to work with this kind of the culture with them. <laughs> So how would um, how would it be in Iran then? How would someone give you negative feedback in Iran? Mm, uh, no, uh, in Iran, the, most of the people are very astride. And then when they want to say, no, this is not good, directly say to you, uh, this is not good at all. And then uh, they ask, for example, my supervisor at the master level, uh, he asked me to re-implement uh, re uh, one uh, simulation more than for 10 times. Were there some things that you found, I suppose, more positive and more interesting about the, the differences between Iran and Sweden? In Sweden, I think most of the people, they work individually and they are, they are very calm. Uh, and at the end, you can get a good result better than Iran because uh, I, I think it's happening uh, in Sweden and, uh, for my PhD studies because I remember that I have a kind of the challenging for implementing a kind of the uh, indoor positioning system with a, a wireless nodes. But I had to implement this thing over kind of the hardware. But the hardware, I couldn't good, get a good result. But my, uh, every week I, can, I came back to my supervisor and said, yeah, I have these difficulties and I couldn't solve it. And he said, be calm. Finally, you can solve it. And I, 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 and I continued and I continue until uh, I think it takes one year. But uh, finally, I can uh, I could good, get a good result over that one. But I think in Iran, we, we got a full of stress to do something uh, in the industry because we're responsible to uh, answer to the project manager and so on. Do you feel like uh, the Swedish people that are around you in your society have been welcoming and accepting or have you faced any issues at all um, as someone arriving in Sweden from Iran? Uh, I think so. They are very welcome and the Swedish people, th their attitude regarding to the Iranian people, it's positive. I think so. Because right now we have a two uh, minister in the government that there are Iranian people that moved so many years ago in Sweden and uh, they have the, this attitude even uh, on the Iranian people and they are very helping us to growing up in the new countries. Can you imagine staying in Sweden and Sweden being your new, I suppose, permanent home? Or do you see your future research uh, going back to Iran? Uh, this is the most important question that uh, so many times I'm thinking about it. We have uh, some kind of the opportunities to apply for, to go to the other countries and not even in the European countries in the United States and also in the Canada and Australia. But I think Sweden, uh, 
is one of the best countries for doing the research and also one of the best countries for living and get the advantages for the whole the life. So uh, me and my wife, we decided to stay here in Sweden for the rest of our life. But for part of the time, maybe we, we, we are going to do a research at the other countries, but we want to come back here. That was Ali Bermani. So it's clear that Ali sees his move abroad as permanent. And of course, many other researchers are in the same position. But for others, changing countries when changing labs can feel more complicated. Sarah Suleiman is now an assistant professor at the University of California, San Francisco, where she's researching immunology of infectious diseases, specifically tuberculosis. Sarah has written about her experiences for Scientific African magazine in a piece titled On Science and Homecoming, a Diaspora African's View. She explained to me that her path to California from Saudi Arabia, where she grew up, had many stops along the way. All right, let's let's do this. So uh, I was born in Sudan. And then when I was two years old, my family decided to move to Saudi Arabia. So I grew up there. Uh, so that's two. And then moved to Canada for um, my undergrad and grad school because I already had family members there. So that's three. Um, and then I moved to South Africa. That's four. <laughs> and then to the States. But even within the States, I lived in two different places. And have you found in, in your academic experience that labs in different countries have, I suppose, different cultures around them? Oh, absolutely. A thousand percent. <laughs> even two different clubs in the same institute would have completely different cultures. And have, have any of these cultural differences, I suppose, taken you by surprise or taken effort to get used to? Yes, but for different reasons, I would say. Okay, my transition from Toronto to Cape Town was going from a basic research lab where like every person for themselves into very collaborative research model where we did, you know, these large clinical human cohort studies, which required a lot of collaboration and a lot of communication. And then moving back to Boston, it kind of seemed a little bit similar to the experience in Toronto, but even more so um, siloed, I would, I would say. And you really have to prove yourself by yourself. <laughs> and then like coming to California, actually, it feels more like Cape Town in the sense that I feel like a lot of people want to work together in teams. And I would say genuinely more open to helping new people integrate, but I feel more supported here. Do you feel like these these differences in levels of collaboration versus competition and things like this, are they kind of decided by the country or more just the individual labs that um, that one ends up in? There's like different levels to it. So there's the society that you live in. I think, you know, the stereotype that West Coasters are more relaxed. There is truth to that. <laughs> uh, also, there's different levels to where that culture comes from. So my division chief here created the culture very deliberately to be more uh, collegial and collaborative. The, the competition doesn't really gel well with my with my personality. It, it just doesn't feel like it, it serves me or the science, to be honest. I, I think it's probably why I felt a little bit out of place in Boston. Now, there's a lot of discussion about the significance of African researchers moving overseas to, to carry out their research and also African researchers returning to the continent. H- how have you thought about this tension in, in your own career? Yeah, so this is something I obviously thought about a lot. So I am an African researcher. I was born in Sudan. I still carry a Sudanese passport. But 
Sudan has not been my lived experience. I haven't lived there myself. Um, so it, it, it's a little bit of a confusing place to say I'm going back, you know, to serve uh, my country or to serve my continent when I haven't actually lived there, even though I'm from there. So it, it was it was an interesting, I would say, dialectic when when I was in Cape Town, because on the one hand, um, it was very important for me as an African researcher to be represented, to be seen and, and to be a role model. But at the same time, I was not from there. You're in this weird place where you're like, well, I'm here because I want to serve this cause of moving African research forward, but I also don't want to perpetuate a colonial global health mentality of coming in with a chip on my shoulder and my, um, you know, um, two Canadian degrees on my back and saying, you know, I'm, I'm doing something here to help the cause. It's very easy to fall into that ego trap. And I noticed that when I was there. And there are different ways where I can serve the science without having to, quote unquote, be a savior. I don't, I don't think I fully resolve the issue. I still feel at my heart and my core, I want to serve African science. I want um, to see more people who look like me represented in STEM spaces. And um, I want to do what I need to do, you know, to create, to facilitate that. So like, you know, even if my lab is based in the US, um, I'm still studying diseases that largely affect um, the African population. I'm still interested in having trainees come through the lab, but um, I want to be conscious that I'm still not having that shared lived experience of being there. But ultimately, I, I have to recognize that I have some privilege being here. And what privileges does being in the United States actually afford you as a researcher? Oh, a lot. I, I think like the grants that usually come into African institutes I mean, I don't want to call them contracts, but, you know, every penny is accounted for, you know, um, you don't have a lot of leverage to, um, you know, just take risks and, and follow your intuition about crazy ideas to pursue. And here, the culture is quite the opposite. It's like, well, what, what are the ideas that you want to pursue? And, and you're not necessarily guided by these like top down decisions of driving the agenda and um, so there's a lot more freedom and a lot, and it, it's more the attitude towards the science than the science itself. It's slowly changing, but um, the agenda is still largely driven by the West. Now, on the flip side, have you have you faced any disadvantages being a member of the African diaspora in North America, in the United States and, and Canada? Oh, absolutely. You know, like all the way from immigration issues to like visa problems and you know, micro and macro aggressions, racism, you know, I think people tend to undermine what, what, um, what I can bring to the table, um, or still at this stage, like sometimes treat me like, you know, the young scholar, the junior researcher, the early career person, like, let us mentor you. <laughs> I think it puts you on the defensive a little bit. And sort of like perpetuates even stereotypes that were, you know, the aggressive black women and, and all of that, that when in reality, it's, it's a reaction to constant microaggressions that we feel uh, that we face actually um, in the workplace. Um, I think there's a lot more discussion. There's a lot more conversation about these things. And, and when I call them out now, it's not as left field as it used to be. And, and, and there's more conversation around them, but there's still a lot of burden, you know, being one of very few people that look like me in this position. How do you think we can begin to overcome some of the biggest obstacles that are 
stopping researchers staying in or stopping researchers returning to the African continent? Well, we have to discuss if that's the goal in the first place. And I think that's what I'm, you know, always contemplating is, is my presence there even an advantage? I, I don't think everybody's goal should be let's go back. It happens right now that I think I'm in probably the best place to 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 be my best self as a scientist. But, um, you know, there could easily be other factors that make me make it easier for me to uh, thrive. You know, uh, for example, I'm far away from my family. That's a big factor in my life, you know, and um, you know, although I can cross borders now and get to see them, I, I've actually gone through years without having access to my family. And that, that definitely had a huge impact on my mental health and on my productivity as a scientist. And I think the decision to move back has to be backed up by, um, you know, multiple levels of support. Are you individually supported in your personal life? Um, are you supported at an institutional level? Are you going into a department that's going to create space for you, help you hire people that serve your mission, allow you to pursue your ideas? Because not every institute actually supports that. You know, sometimes, you know, um, department heads have specific agendas and they're hiring investigators to support specific research missions. Um, and uh, also, are you in a country where you feel comfortable? You know, do I can I walk around the streets and feel safe? You know, um, um, right now my home country is in a is pretty much a conflict zone. We haven't had a functioning government since October since we had the military coup. Um, that's not conducive to doing good research. <laughs> period. So there's a lot of factors that go into that decision, and um, it makes a lot more sense to make those big leaps when when you actually have real social capital in your career, and when you're in an advanced stage where you can go back and actually affect change. You know, the reality of right now is that there is no place that is home, actually. And, and home is a feeling that you create wherever you go. You mentioned in your piece on uh, Scientific African Magazine, uh, the role that mentors can play in encouraging young scientists in the African continent. Um, how do we begin to build a better mentorship network then? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I think there's um, I talked about this recently, the, the idea that mentors need to look like you is false. And um, the, the reality is there's, there's not a lot of senior African researchers, and, and let me say this very explicitly, senior Black African researchers that we can um, all look up to and seek support from at this point. So I've had phenomenal mentors that supported me when I was in South Africa that did not look anything like me. They were actually white men, you know, and um, they've opened so many doors. Uh, my career, like I said, I feel like it actually started when I was in Cape Town. So um, mentorship is, is huge. Um, now, what we need is a network of mentors that are both, you know, um, black and non-black. And, you know, we need allies that don't necessarily look like us, but actually have resources to share and uh, they can be the people who suggest, you know, that we speak in different conferences, put our name forward for different uh, grant opportunities, reviewing, um, asking us to be a part of their research programs, collaborating. But what's important in those networks is um, realizing that there is an, a disadvantage that is specific to people who are who have come from historically marginalized groups and not coming in with a position of charity or being a savior or anything like that, but actually acknowledging that 
that that course needs to be corrected. There needs to be some sort of reparations, if I can use that word, because a lot of the global health infrastructure started as a colonial project, actually, and we need to be um, very vocal in, in acknowledging that so that op- real opportunities are given to people who, who don't have the same uh, historical support. To what extent do you think that the experiences that you've shared would translate to others who are maybe in a similar position? The Black diasporan experience is not a monolith. Like each individual researcher who's a Black diasporan, either because you know they're immigrants or um, because you know they came, um, their ancestors were brought in as slaves or. Um, you know, uh, migrated a couple of generations ago, as opposed to, you know, migrating now, like each individual person will have a completely different set of experiences. And we should not talk about these experiences as like one broad umbrella. Um, yeah, just being cognizant that it's, it's a very diverse experience. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Sarah Suleiman there. It's clear already from the two interviews we've had that every move abroad is felt differently, both in the day-to-day experience and in its cultural significance. But one thing is important for everyone moving to a lab in a new country. Do your research on the team you'll become a part of. You may remember Joanne Cammons, who I spoke to in the first episode of this series. Joanne is a diversity, equity and inclusion consultant at the Impact Seat. And she says that all the considerations one should make when moving labs are magnified when moving lab abroad. If you are about to choose a training or postdoc lab and your v- and especially for postdocs, your visa is dependent on your PI, it boggles my mind how much people don't realize how important it is that you choose an ethical and supportive PI. Um, the stories of, of particularly women, but not just women, um, being you know abused, bullied, harassed, taken advantage of by um, principal investigators who have visa control over people in their lab are horrible. And I would love to see the funding organizations crack down on this type of behavior as far as overwork, uh, unreasonable requests, um, you know, bad treatment. But if your visa is dependent on this job, it is very, very hard to make a switch. So it's extremely important for people to carefully choose a lab when they're going to another culture. So far today, we've explored what it means to set down academic roots in a country far from where you grew up, in terms of both geography and in terms of culture. But for some scientists, a move abroad is more of a temporary step. Psychologist Cushion Zhang is based at Qingdao University in China, the country he grew up in and started his studies. But he got his PhD and worked on his first postdoc in Germany. I spoke to him about what motivated his move, as well as his eventual move back. I go to Germany in 2011, and I started as a PhD candidate. 
in the uh, in the universe of constants, and I come back in 2018. Why did you decide to move to the University of Constants in the first place? What was your motivation? Because when I'm I was a master student, I had research collaboration with my supervisor in University of Constance, and、uh, I do cross-cultural studies in China for one year with the lab. Based on this, so I saw that、um, it would be great idea to do a, a PhD in in Germany. Were you at all nervous about the idea of moving to Germany? No, I'm not that nervous because I think that already, already know a little bit at least. But actually, is might be naive because so I just as a young guy that okay go abroad. But when I started the PhD over there, I really a little bit nervous because the experience over there. I saw that I still needed too much knowledge to start my PhD. What kind of knowledge? Not only language, but also the knowledge from the psychology, as well as more independent、uh, life skills, as well as the critic thinking ideas. What kind of aspects of the lifestyle did you find particularly different to what you were used to? For example, in China, majority of the students or PhD still can live in the university, and the university can take care of the room. You don't need cooking. You don't need funny apartments. All these type of things. But when I go to Germany, everything you need to take care by yourself independently. I think that would be how to say a little bit shock between China and Germany. Were there also shocks or differences within the lab in terms of how you would interact with your colleagues or or with your supervisor? Definitely in the first year. I really had meet problems、uh, with my lab mates as well as my supervisors because the different cultural communication method. For example,、uh, in China, it is easier for you to direct connect with your supervisor, use your smartphone, or send message. In Germany, it always need to write an email first, fix a time slot. For your meeting, and there huge separation between business and daily life, and the collaboration in Germany, from my perspective, at first it is very independent with each other. That means you definitely you need to take care of your own research project independently. Were there differences that you also found? I suppose refreshing or enjoyable about、uh, your time in Germany. In the first year, I would say is 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 a tough start because I need to get used how to say how to organize things in in the lab and how to communicate with the、uh, with the colleagues as well as the supervisors. But after one year, and you you get used the the methods of there is really very enjoyable、uh, experience over there because. You you can take care of your own business as well as you have your own time and own spaces to think freshly, critically by yourself. How did you find, I suppose, the German society in general? I study in University of Constance and I live in Constance for around eight years. So in general,、uh, the citizens and、uh, especially the colleagues in. In the university, are、uh, really politely and nice to foreign students. 
You've since returned to China, though.、Um, what actually made you decide you wanted to to go back?、Uh, at that time, already、uh, have done two year postdoc research for two years, so I think that is my time to start a new level. Looking the job in China, I think it's not that difficult for me. To find a position, and、I、also already living in Germany for around eight years,、uh, I miss my family and also my country. Were there, I suppose, lessons or things that you、um, experienced in Germany that you wanted to bring into your lab that you were starting in China? The first lesson is that to doing、um, independent research because. A great experience in in Germany for me is that always thinking independently for the research area and to find your own research interesting. Do you have any advice for researchers who are thinking about going to study abroad for the first time? Yeah, I always encourage a lot of, of my students as well as my colleagues go over abroad because my main idea is that you definitely need to know. The society outside for the students, for the master students or PhD students, you need to prepare. You have enough language skills as well as enough openness to accept different cultures. That is my tips always for them. The students going abroad, when they come back, they always have a very good connection between China and the society out of China. And I think they are really very good experience for for the whole society. That was Cushion Jiang. As these three interviews have illustrated, moving labs and moving to a new country at the same time can throw up a host of issues and provide a wide range of opportunities. But changing country isn't the only potential complicating factor when moving labs. What happens when you swap labs? And transition to a whole different discipline. Well, we'll be discussing exactly that in the next episode. I'll catch you then. This has been Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Adam Levy. Sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health. Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for twenty percent off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 